Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Our common ground, alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio, speaking truth to ours and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know? Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? As you honor our forefathers and foremothers, I urge you to honor our living heroes. When you honor the names of Matt Turner, Harriet Tubman, and Malcolm X, I urge you to honor the names of Geronimo Gijaga, Sundiata Akoli, Matulu Shakur, and Mumia Abu-Jamal. America's chickens are coming home to roost. Violence begets violence. Hatred begets hatred. And terrorism begets terrorism. Our common ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Thank you for being with us. Stay tuned. And it is a wonderful, almost summer uh, season at Our Common Ground. Thank you so much for being with us. Tonight on Our Common Ground, we're going to be talking with a great black liberation expositor, law professor Vanilla Randall of the University of Dayton Law School, and we hope that you will call a friend and say that we're talking talk that matters, and we'll be joining with uh, Professor Vanilla Randall right after this. Put on your seatbelts. I'm Janice Graham. Glad to have you with us. Our common ground, broadcast is bold, free, and black, speaking truth to Paul and ourselves. And that means then the economics of greed, the cultural of indifference to the poor, and the politics of fear have now 
come to an end. And the question now is, we're on the tightrope, we're in a transitional moment. What will the age of Obama look like? Can we get beyond the trivializing of poor people's suffering? Can we get beyond the dogma of unregulated markets? Can we get beyond the Washington consensus when it comes to attitudes toward the third world? And with now a black face in the White House and a precious black family as the first family, that transformation of the self-image of the United States will be profound. The question in, in the end will be, on the ground, can we empower those sly stone called everyday people? Well, when it comes to black faces in high places, America's undergone extraordinary change. When it comes to the suffering of black poor people, the suffering of black working people, the verdict is not yet in in terms of shifting from symbol to substance. But I believe Barack Obama has what it takes. We're going to find out whether he has what it takes. I think he does, but more than likely we're going to find out whether America does because in the end it's going to be citizens organized and mobilized putting pressure on an Obama administration. There's a sense in which he is only as strong as the people's organizations are strong. It's like I woke up a few days ago and realized we are legally enslaved. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking spiritual slavery. I'm not talking cultural slavery. I'm not talking slavery of the mind. I'm not talking slavery of the attitude. I'm not talking slavery of what we won't do. I'm talking about even if you want to do it, you can't. Because the law isn't going to let you. And what struck me is that I was asleep. Mm. Harriet Tubman, and I am no Harriet Tubman, I'm not even trying, so don't think I'm trying to relate myself to her. Harriet Tubman said she helped thousands out of slavery through the Underground Railroad. She could have helped thousands more if they only knew they were enslaved. Okay? So you have no excuse now for walking out and not understanding that whether you have a felony, whether you are on parole and have some kind of background, or whether you're just working in the system trying to do the best you do, you're working in a system that's enslaving you and your family and children and potentially your grandchildren. Tonight at Our Common Ground, modern-day enslavement of African Americans. Are we caught in the trap? A talk with law professor, legal scholar, Renalia Randall. She teaches at the University of Dayton Law School in Ohio. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Our Common Ground. Speaking truth to power. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Broadcasting brave, bold, black. Thank you for being with us. And indeed, thank you for being with us. Our guest tonight, law professor Vanilia Ruth Randall. She was born in Gladewater, Texas, and uh, 
both of her parents were associated in education at Jarvis Christian College, and we'll talk with her about her career and her preposition that somehow we are caught in a trap. Professor Vanilia Randall, thank you so very much for being with us tonight. It is our privilege to uh, chat with you about so many of what it means today in this claim of American post-racial society. How are you? I am so fine, and thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and to others about this problem uh, that we have as a as a as a community, as uh, a society. Uh, it's every bit as problematic as Jim Crow was to my dad's generation and slavery was to my granddad's generation. Let me ask you, you um, uh, about uh, some portions of your career and how you got uh, to the law school at University of Dayton. Uh, tell us a little about some of your major career achievements that you feel most proud about and what you are doing in the classroom at law school. I think there are many people who really don't understand what happens in a law school. <laughs> well, I um, I actually started out as a nurse and uh, and graduated from the University of Texas at Austin School of Nursing in the early 70s uh, and actually practiced nursing for 15 years and for both professional and personal reasons decided to go to law school in the mid-80s. I practiced law about three years. But the problem with the practice of law is that it's difficult unless you're in a uh, it's uh in a public interest firm it's difficult to impact uh society from a values point of view because you're dictated by your client's needs and in in if you're practicing law you're often uh trying to make a living you're often not capable of really going about the law in a way that you would like to go um, uh, because the client that's coming in has certain needs that you have to be met. I decided to become a teacher because I felt like that little of legal education was preparing uh, anyone um, uh, in in terms of the needs of uh of the African American community and and so I've been teaching the last 20 years at the University of Dayton. I I'm tenured. I've been tenured for the last 10 years and I teach race and racism in American law. I teach healthcare law, which is my primary research area. I do uh, health system changes trying to eliminate this look at how we change systems to get better health outcomes for African Americans, get rid of the uh the death trap that we're in. Uh 
and I teach uh, remedies, which is, of course, about uh, if you sue, what can you get, and I teach professional ethics. I teach from a perspective, a uh, critical race perspective. I teach values, my which is really different in law school. My basic view is that there, all law is a representation of somebody's values, and that uh, when you figure that out, then you can figure out why it disadvantages certain people and certain group. If you think the law is neutral, on the, even when it seems neutral on its face, you, you're mistaken. And unfortunately, most lawyers are trained to believe that the law is neutral and that the law is objective and that the problem is may come in how some people implement it. Uh, but I think that the law itself is not neutral. Um, just because it doesn't say race doesn't mean that it doesn't have a racial component built into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're the author of um, Dying While Black. Yes. Uh, and that comes out of, obviously, from being a nurse and comes out of the fact that uh, 100,000 black people die every year that wouldn't die if we had the same death rate as uh, white and comes out of the fact that uh, when you control for income that black people are dying at a higher rate uh, than white people of the same income. So the average low end, the average life expectancy for poor whites is three years longer than for poor blacks. The average life expectancy for middle class whites is ten years longer than middle class blacks. We often in this society now we want to think that the disparities, and we I mean the societal we, not necessarily. You or me or the, our listeners, but the societal we wants to think that disparities are due to income, and the reality is in every single area, when you control for income, blacks are doing worse than whites, and and that has a health impact. Mhm, mhm. I have um, always thought that the disparities. Uh, in addition to service and interest by by uh, medical caregivers, has always come just based on the tremendous amount of stress caused by institutional racism in this country, where black people are constantly bombarded by the the pressures and the and the distress and despair that institutional racism br- brings to bear into their lives no matter w- what what they do but one of the things that um in your book um dying black is that no one has really begun to deal with the notion of how all of those things uh the healthcare system in which blacks have to uh, enter into the kind. I mean, recently we just saw articles about uh, in the news about how black um, surgeons, very 
prominent black surgeons and physicians are being treated in in the state of California uh and and then the the kind of reticence that black people have in approaching healthcare systems all come into play with that other thing called the stresses of just being black trying to make it and being black and well, you know, that that is that is i mean the, i mean you're absolutely right the major issue is is that everyone knows i mean this is this is not anything that is uh you know speculative stress causes disease mm-hmm. most of the diseases that we are very high in have a stress base and people don't talk about that diabetes has a stress base uh hypertension has a stress base uh cancer has a stress base so if you are under an ongoing chronic low level even low level stress you know in fact what i say to people is we often think of stress as that type of thing that slaps you in the face and that's really stressful to get slapped in the face but how stressful is it to have a dull ballpoint pen sticking in your side that you can't remove. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> that that even what what starts off as a low level kind of insult. It's not a big insult. It's not a slap in the face. But if it's a continuous pressure, a continuous insult. That, after a while, becomes so overwhelming that, in fact, you'd rather have a slap in the face. At least it would be over with. And I think that's the problem that we have as black people. And I think particularly uh, black people, and I don't want to say particularly because I don't want to make a hierarchy of pain, but I think that we have not even begun to deal with the impact of being black in historical white institutions uh, and what that means to work in those kinds of institutions. Uh, And a lifetime of that work has impacted our health. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Our parents weren't impacted. Well, I, I think that one of the things that it also, that that we don't talk about as much, and I think so much of that stress has to do with uh, denial and fighting back the guilt and the shame of being victimized uh, for no reason. Uh, you know, I, I think about that. And I really recommend to all of our listeners tonight that if you get a chance, please do read uh, Dying While Black by Professor Vernelia Randall. Um, I also want to point out to, to you, and she hasn't said it, but I am just so tickled. Um, well, I get, I guess I get tickled red, black, and and and, and green uh, that you are uh, um, uh, an an expert web designer. Yes, I have how several did, how did, web. How did that happen? <laughs> you know, when did you have is, time for that? <laughs> well, it came about 
when I was a nurse in Alaska, this is this is so weird. Um, I was a single parent with two children up in Alaska and working as a nurse. And I'd come home at night, put my kids to bed, and I didn't have a whole lot to do. I don't know if any of you remember the Atari game that was back in the 70s. I decided to teach myself to program as something to occupy my time. And over the years, I just developed, I'm an innovator. When it comes to technology, I've been an innovator all my life. And so uh, when websites started, I just started. I, I, um, I, I can't remember, I think I've had a website of some kind since the early 90s. Um, I just redesigned my website. Is, I just moved it off of the university uh, website to racism.org is the name. It's, it's a website on race, racism, and the law. And it's really not a blog. I, I don't blog. What I try to do is give people access to legal information that is generally only available to lawyers, law review articles. Um, so that people can see what law, what law professors are saying to each other, what lawyers are saying to each other about the problems that we are facing. And so I focus on race, and I focus on racism, and I focus on um, law review articles primarily. Mm-hmm. I excerpts and and sometimes the whole article, um, just so that people can see what people are, how people are discussing the problem. And, and for our, our listeners, I want to reiterate, the, repeat that website. It's racism.org. The featured article on the website uh, this week is racism, Race, Racism, and the Law, Considering Institutional and Systemic Racism, which we're going to be talking about. But there's also a petition to demand that President Obama institute a national plan of action for racial justice and human rights. And we encourage you to sign that petition at racism.org, or you can go to our community forum where there is a link to the petition as well. And um, there are some some very interesting articles uh, that if people want to talk about race, you have to talk about it in an informed way. You have to understand how the law is fashioned in a way that provides us terms and and language that uh, you don't generally hear in the public discourse, and it's all there. Now, Professor Randall, one of the reasons I wanted to have this talk with you is that for um, – to, to talk about this whole notion of modern enslavement. Right. Where we are in regard to some insistent and, and faulty insistence uh, that we are somehow uh, moving into a, a post-racial uh, <laughs> period. And I want to ask, uh, ask you to, to, to address what it all means when we look at the prison industrial complex, when we look at how poor people are being demonized 
uh, in this country. When we look at how successfully the media has demonized black black boys to the extent that a man can step out of the shadows and murder one in cold blood, when we look at um, recently I interviewed Mar- Marissa Alexander, who was just sentenced to 20 years for defending her life against an abusive husband. When we look at all of that stuff, there are people over in the corner saying, but we have a African-American president. What does it all mean? Well, you know, the thing is, is one of the things we have to be aware of is to not get caught up in the advancement of a few. Okay? What we have to look at, there's all, I have been successful. I have been successful in my career as a nurse. I've been successful in my career as a lawyer. I have been successful in my career as a law professor. <laughs> that that success doesn't do anything to change the system. The system is, the current system is designed specifically to allow for some success. Because when you allow for some success, the system can always point to those successes as evidence that things are better while things are getting worse. Mm-hmm. And so what I do, I teach race and racism in American law. And all, this all came about, this came together for me this semester, actually. I mean, and I've taught this course for quite a few years. And one of the things I do is I take a historical look because I believe that if we don't fully understand history, we can't really deal with the present. And I think that's how come we're where we are. Is very few people, blacks included, really understand how slavery came about and 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 what it meant. We, for instance, we didn't. Very few people probably don't understand that there was a point in American history where there was no slavery. There were indentured servants, white and black, who signed contracts to pay all to pay off their uh, 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 come, their uh, shipment to come over here, and so though, and, and it was. A, I'm not trying to say it was a long point in our history, and it was before the Constitution, but there was a point when there were there wasn't any slavery and America could have taken a different role. But they needed cheap labor and the indenture servant role wasn't working out as well as they wanted and they wanted to do Native Americans and that wasn't working out. And the very first kind of law that made slaves recorded history was when three indentured servants ran away. Two were white, one was black. When they were caught, the law extended the sentence of the white men for like three, five years, 
so saying, okay, because you run away, you now have to work on this contract an extra three to five years. But what it did is gave life kind contract to the black slave. It's the first recorded instance of that happening. And that was the real beginning of slavery on this continent when they began to say, oh, let's let's give life enslavement to people here who are free men, free, they're indentured, but they're free. Then they began to ship slaves over, and the whole slavery system happened one law at a time. There wasn't no, there wasn't a point where someone passed a bill and said we're going to have slavery. Now, by the time we get to the constitution, slavery is a full-blown institution within the United States, but it happened one law at a time, and it had two components. One component that was the taking away of the complete liberty of of blacks and using them for profit for their owners. Okay, so that's the first component. The second component was authorized violence against blacks. Uh, you could kill your slave, you could uh, abuse your slave, uh, and slaves couldn't sue for that that authorized legal violence. And I should say there was a third component. The third component was to keep the slaves uneducated. Okay. So when I look at today's situation, what I see is the same components. We have a prison industrial complex, the purpose of to make a profit, to enslave black men and women, the the fastest growing group being enslaved as black women. So to enslave black men and black women through the prison industrial complex, which, by the way, is perfectly legal and accepted. So the 13th Amendment says the United States can't have slavery except for imprisonment. So even back then they thought of imprisonment as a form of slavery. So if they thought of it as a form of slavery then, why aren't we thinking of it as a form of slavery now? Uh, And then the stand-your-ground laws, I think, is the legal lynching that that to keep black people in the place. And and I can talk about how that uh, all fits together a little bit more. Um, But what we have, and then we have the undermining of the educational system, so that people are are are, can't get a quality education. Uh, uh, through the public school, and I think that's where it has to be housed. I don't think charter schools are an answer. Uh, And so what we have is an undereducated population that is being in prison at uh, way more than uh, uh, our representation in the population and our, our use of drugs and all of that those kinds of things, and who now have to worry. Uh, we have uh, 
uh, the killer with the badge. We've always had that when uh, cops would kill blacks. But now we are, we have authorized civilians will be authorized to kill black people out of reasonable fear. When you say reasonable fear, what do, what do you mean by that? The stand Florida has the one of the worst laws, but the stand your ground laws basically say that. Well, let me back up a little bit and give people a, a, a quick little lesson. In I used to teach criminal law in self defense. You can always defend yourself under the law. There's there there you can always defend yourself under the law. It's just that up until now, recently, if you could retreat, you you were required to. Because the law doesn't want to encourage fights. At least it didn't want to encourage fights. And so the idea was defend yourself, but if you can retreat safely, you don't have to put yourself in danger, so you don't have to go jumping out a window where you might get injured. But if you can go out a back door, go out the back door. Don't stand your ground, get in a fight, and then someone get injured. So that's the so the law said you can defend yourself, but if you can retreat, retreat. The other thing the law said is, and you can never use deadly force unless deadly force is being used against you. So I can't, someone can't, you know, hit me with their fist and I pull out a gun and kill them. Um, Now these laws says if you're reasonable, if you have reasonable fear, uh, even if you're not threatened with deadly force, you can use deadly force. And you don't have to retreat. So basically, in this racist society, what I say to people is, what it basically means is we, we, that a black man starts walking towards a white man with his hands in his pocket, and, you know, they don't like our expressions anyway. I always People say I always look mean. So, you know, it's kind of like they don't like our expressions. They don't understand our expressions. And so they look at us and think, oh, my God, look at this angry black man coming towards me. He has his hand in his pocket. I'm so scared. Pull out his gun and shoot. Now, is that reasonable? Well, the problem with reasonableness is is that it's a value. Reasonable from whose perspective? So in a society that has demonized black people and and continuously present us as angry, as threatening, yes, it would seem reasonable to think that this person with their hands who was walking forward towards me might be threatening me. It might not be so reasonable to give you another example. Would you ever think it was reasonable for a six-foot-tall man, say white man, to be fearful of an unarmed four-foot-tall woman, no matter how she looked? That 
might not be so reasonable because of our societal norms, you know. She may, in fact, know judo or something, but just off the bat, we wouldn't think that was reasonable. So the law doesn't require actual threats. So you you don't have to have actual threats. You don't have to have an actual weapon. You don't have to have anything but I'm afraid and my fear is reasonable. And that obviously that reasonableness is not judged by the person who does the shooting, but we know how white juries and even black juries, I mean, having a few black people on a jury doesn't necessarily impact the outcome. Well, we went through a period uh, right after uh, the Civil War, what I call neo-slavery, and then we went through another period right after World War II where we thought that the promised land was before us. And what what you just outlined informs us that even if we think that the election of President Barack Obama was about hope and change and it was the promised land, that we are facing a legal system which continues the enslavement of our people. That's right. This, 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 the only thing this has has to do with... Uh, President Obama is maybe his failure to do anything to correct this, and that's a whole other discussion. And he does have the power to do something. But the fact of the matter is, is he's going to be elected. He's going to, if he gets reelected, he's going to be there four years. If he doesn't do anything, if we can't get anything done, we have a legal system that. Incarcerate the, the incarcerates drug users and incarcerates black drug users at a higher rate than white drug users, even though the drug use is almost in percentage rise is almost the same. In fact, uh, whites use drugs more than black. I was just recently looking at this uh, 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 this uh, chart that talking about juvenile delinquent behavior. In almost every category except membership in a gang, whites had more delinquent behavior than blacks, including carrying a gun. And so what we have is a system that, because we have a prison industrial complex, the prisons are there to make profit. The, they make pro, they are to give profit, and they do that in several ways. They give jobs to people, so you, someone has to guard people. We have we give money to towns that where prisons are located, and we get voting power to towns where prisons are located. And so what we've done is we've, we've increased the power of small white towns 
by moving in black people who get to be counted as part of their uh, population while they're in prison, but who are never going to stay in that town when they get out. So you uh-huh. have a way of uh, profit being made off of black bodies. And the third and more direct way that profit is being made off of black bodies is, is that uh, prisons actually contract with corporations to, for labor to do things um, at, you know, $1 an hour, if that. Uh, and uh, and so we have this prison industrial complex that is really um, built on making profits, and we have um, we have uh, we have that happening even as we uh, even as we see it, you know, right before our eyes. Uh, uh, this twenty percent to a third of black men are going to, are are uh, ha, are in prison. Mhm. And, and and I read recently that the prison which is the largest uh private prison uh corporation in the country, prison prison corporation of America, they have plans of over the next 3 years building 115 prisons in this country, and that's not even to speak about the other capitalist opportunities that happen inside of prisons, and that is that prison labor become the handmaiden, unpaid or low-paid handmaiden of many corporations. No, that's and, exactly And, 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 and fact, the, the, the private prison corporation is, has offered to take, over, to take over at least one prison in every state more, but on the condition, one, that there's a 20-year contract, and two, that the state guarantees an 80% occupancy rate. So what does that mean, that we're going to guarantee a certain number of people are going to go to jail? Um, and so that this whole idea is is that we've got this we have these people whose bodies, black men and black women, who, their whole the whole system is designed around assuring that uh, that they go to jail. They get pol- we get policed more. We get stopped and searched and frisked more. Uh, you know, if there's any kind of crime involving. Uh, anyone that closely looks like a black person, you know, dragnets are done, and and people are arrested, and and criminal records are started, and then the problem becomes is once in that system, there are all kinds of things that makes it difficult to impossible to uh, to get out of it and to become free from it, including all of the laws that strip rights away from people after they serve their time. So people mm-hmm. people can't live in public housing, people can't get food stamps, people can't get loans for college or trade school, 
uh, money, uh, federal money for colleges or trade school. Uh, in many places, people lose their right to vote for all or part of the time. And so even after coming out of prison, uh, the a, the black person who's gone to prison is now um, a partially free person, which is another historical fact. Many mm-hmm. people realize that there were many. There were we we talk about the people who were free, free blacks, and we talk about the enslaved blacks. But there was a small this group of people who were partially free. They were. They were enslaved, but they were allowed to work and save some of their money and allowed to live a, a somewhat distance from from the owner. And so what we see is that same sort of partially free. You, you are still under the thumb. Uh, why do we ask people, why do we ask people, why, why do we allow employers to ask people whether or not they've ever been convicted of a crime. How is that relevant? If you if you have a specific need to know certain things, for instance, do you um, uh, have you ever uh, been convicted of embezzlement? I think would be a good question if you were going to be a banker. But you just you don't generally need to know whether a person has been convicted of any crime whatsoever, actually uh, because we have so many victimless crimes. Mhm, mhm. And 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 the, the the way in which this kind of what I I generally call because one of the things that happened right after the 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 Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation was folks were gathering together to figure out how you could break down the citizenship of black people. Exactly. And as as immigrants, uh, brown and Caribbean, uh, west, north, and uh, others who were perceived as black uh, came into this country, it was always... Uh, some kind of institutional strategy going on to ensure that their citizenship was blocked. Well, for uh, the longest time, uh, no one could immigrate to this country unless they could prove they were white. That was by law. Uh, and the immigration laws changed um in the 50s in the late 50s and 60s the, uh they changed but um so this whole you know i get to white students in my class and they want to ask me you know why do people why do black people keep referring to white people you know i don't like that i'm like black people didn't construct the idea of whiteness the law constructed the idea of whiteness. The law constructed the idea of whiteness when it had all of these immigrants coming into this country, and the immigrants were from all these different countries. These people didn't come. Germans and Swedes and uh, Italian and Irish didn't come here believing I'm white. They came here as a part of their ethnic group, and in order to be admitted into the white ethnic group, they had to give up all of their 
you know, their language, their uh, names, uh, anything that smacked of difference. And part of this whiteness that was created by American law has been an anti-black racism. That mm-hmm. that in order to be able to prove that you have assimilated into well into the society, you have to also adopt the our our number one export, which is whiteness as a concept that's that originated in our country and we exported it to other countries. Mm-hmm. And now, now it's worldwide it. racial construct and anti-black racism, which didn't just originate here. Part of it has been that uh, in the history of black people in this country, whatever scraps, leftovers, um, crumbs were offered, uh, there were groups of black leader parts of the black leadership and even individuals who were not part of the leadership who acquiesced into accepting it because they felt and called it progress. And uh, we're going to have to take a break, but when we come back, I want to talk about some of the laws and how some of these laws were constructed to one, appear to bring progress and freedom to black people, but on the on the surface of it. But when you look at the laws and the political process and how we bought into those processes as part of our undoing in our march toward toward freedom, uh, you can see how the forms of enslavement uh, continued, have a continuous thread even through the law. Uh, we're talking with Professor Vanilia uh, Randall uh, tonight, and we're talking about, we're having a talk with her about modern-day enslavement for African Americans and are we in the trap. You're listening to Our Common Ground And when we come back, we'll continue our conversations with her. She is a law professor at University of Dayton, Ohio Law School. I'm Janice Graham, and we thank you so very much. Good to have all of you with us. I see all the regulars in our chat room. And for those of you who are listening and would like to join us in our chat room, you can come to blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. And please visit racism.org, which is the web uh, place for Professor Vanilia Randall, our guest tonight. We'll be right back. I'm Janice Graham, and you're listening to Our Common Ground.
having a problem carrying that laptop, that iPad, all that stuff? We've got the answer at Sister Bag by Patera. You know, carrying your stuff and more stuff is the problem. We've got the solution. It's Sister Bag. Sister Bag. Get one today. They're sturdy and large enough to contain books, your laptop, and everything else that you want to carry with you. There's a large inside pocket for a cell phone, wallet, or keys, whatever you carry. You can use these bags for school, for work, for dress. They will soon be your best friend. Bag comes in a variety of designs with wonderful, beautiful African fabric and the best of craftsmanship. And the bag is surely the bag to look for on your way out. Sisterbags.blogspot.com Matera designs sister bags for men as well. So get your brother bag. I'm Janice Graham, and I carry my sister bag. My life was going downhill fast. Everybody was on my case. Now, I kept hoping that life would change real soon. I knew drinking too much messed up my life. A friend suggested I check out AA. It worked. I found myself in an AA group. Finally, I've got my act together. Alcoholics Anonymous. It works. Look us up. Check your phone book, newspaper, or AA.org. It's a huge waste, and it's a corruption and a distortion. It's like it's a profound neurosis that nobody examines for what it is. It feels crazy. It is crazy. And it leaves, it has just as much of a deleterious effect on white people and possibly equal as it does black people. This is our common ground. Thank you for being with us tonight. And we thank you for being with us. Our guest tonight is law professor Vernelia Randall, and we're talking about modern-day enslavement. And you can join us in this conversation our number is 347-838-9852, or you can join our chat room. Uh, there's, uh, if you're looking for Alpho, he's in the chat room. If you're looking for my sister wife, Michelle, she's in the chat room, too. Thank you so very much, House Music Lovers with us and Black Brotherhood. Uh, House Music Lover, thank you for being with us, and Modest. Sassi is also with us uh, in our chat room. Our Common Ground at blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. Professor Randall, when we went on break, uh, one of the things that we wanted to talk about is looking at the laws. Let's, Let's look at some of 
uh, the laws. For instance, um, <clears throat> we had laws in regard to, uh, we had to, to put together a law to break what was what we call segregated housing, segregated uh, schools, segregated um, facil- public facilities, segregated, everything was segregated. Uh, and so laws were put into place. In employment, you had Title VII, you had Executive Order 11246, um, but when the process of putting all of that together, I mean, it wasn't specifically addressing the atrocity created by this country under law, the atrocity and the genocidal way in which Africans were brought to this country and treated. We had to have Title VII and the Civil Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act, and it covers everybody and their mama and still doesn't address our problems. We are still in this country, for those of you who do not know and understand, we are still enslaved by by even the laws that were designed to protect us. I'll give you a good example of what happened to black people in this country in the last 10 years in regard to this whole American, so-called American dream of home ownership and predatory lending and subprime lending. Black people face those problems at a greater rate than anybody else. So talk to us about that. Professor Randall, well, these laws of, put into place. Part of the problem is, and I wrote an article about this, I actually, the problem is lawmakers make laws to solve problems in a way that doesn't impact their community of identity very much. So even when they call themselves making a pro, solve a problem uh, for another community, they look to solve it in a way that's going to have the least impact on their community of identity. And I say that because it's not necessarily uh, race-based, although it could be. It's not necessarily class-based, although it could be. And you do get some people who identify with a broader community than the one they came from are a different one. You get black people who come from poor backgrounds but whose current community of identity is upper middle class white. And so when those people go to make laws to help, say, poor blacks and middle income blacks, they they look at how can we do this with with the least impact on my community. So in that end the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which I'm a direct beneficiary of, I've been a first all my life. I grew up, <laughs> and I I laugh about the first thing because that and two dollars and ninety six cents will get you a cup of coffee and Dunkin' Donuts. Oh, I mean that's <laughs> right. And and so the Civil Rights Act of 1964 opened up some doors, some doors that were closed to my father. My father had a college degree from from uh, uh, from Jarvis Christian College, uh, but could not get a job 
using his degree until the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So between 1948, which is when he got his degree, and 1964, he did did labor jobs, working in plant jobs. He didn't use his degree. Okay. So I... The Civil Rights Act of 1964 did what they wanted to do, was to open up some doors and to work on getting rid of overt, intentional kind of discrimination. Now, what they didn't want and what they were fearful of is having to deal with impact discrimination, negligent discrimination, discrimination where people don't necessarily sit around thinking, I'm going to discriminate against, I don't want black people in my building, but they adopt policies and practices, they adopt procedures that have the impact of discrimination. That's what the, when they implement the Civil Rights Act of 1964, they didn't define discrimination. Now, that's the worst thing you can do in a law is not define it because you leave it up to the courts to have to define it, and courts are conservative. They're, going, they're, not going, they're going to define things in the most conservative way possible, uh, and so they did. They said that, uh, that the Civil Rights Act required intentional discrimination, which meant that all of the discrimination that was unintentional was not covered. So the agencies adopted some regulations to try to get at some of that. But then the courts come back and said, that uh, you can't sue, an individual can't sue on impact discrimination. So the impact, what most most people don't realize is that in the United States today, the most prominent kind of discrimination, which is non-intentional disparate impact discrimination, cannot be sued on by an individual. I cannot collect the data and file a suit. All I can do is complain to an agency that can file a suit if they so choose. If so, they so choose. And, and that's mm-hmm. the key. That, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, and so without the law on our side, it means that the efforts are dependent on the funding of agencies and the political leaning of the agencies. And as we know, that the only difference between Republicans and Democrats on this issue is nothing. That the Republicans do nothing to implement laws that would be more expansive in terms of dealing with discrimination, and the Democrats don't either. When Democrats, like an example of this, is the recent health care plan, the recent health care law, the Democrats had an opportunity to put in the recent health care law at least a more favorable definition of discrimination 
um, in the healthcare law because they put in something about discrimination that uh, you know that uh, uh, healthcare agencies can't discriminate. There was all kinds of lobbying. I was one of those to try to say, why not ex- why not address this non-intentional non-discrimination, uh, and they refused. Mm-hmm. And 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 this was at the same time that we were seeing Clarence Thomas as the director of the EEOC. No, this was uh, Obamacare. Is what I'm talking about. Oh, okay, but. I just want to point out to to our audience that when you see these kinds of laws, when you see how this political system has institutionalized the continuation of discrimination, you look at an agency like the EEOC and 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 you see Clarence Thomas um being the head of the Civil Rights Division at Department of Education, you see him being uh, at the at the helm of the EEOC, and you understand why none of this stuff is being being uh, addressed. And as you talk about Obamacare, you can also look at the enactment of both Title Seven of, uh, of the Civil Rights Act, Title Six of the Civil Rights Act, Title Eight of the Civil Rights Act, because people have to depend upon the political intent as well as the law. And and the problem becomes is is that the that no matter the law itself is inadequate in its language, inadequate in its implementation. We really so we don't have a way to sue and deal with uh massive discrimination against black people which is pervasive in this society. You, in housing, in education, in um, uh, food. Judicial. Mm -hmm. You can't name a part of our society in which black people don't suffer serious handicapping discrimination. And that discrimination occurs without regard to income. That is, black middle-class people are discriminated against uh, uh, more than uh, uh, white middle-class people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For instance, in this recent housing thing, black middle-class people who had the income to buy houses were all were refused regular loans and offer those junk loans far more often than white people with mm-hmm. the statement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and, but when, and you when, see also municipal law uh, utilizing it in terms of uh, going down the eastern coast all the way down into the, in, into Florida all the way across to Alabama and Mississippi using eminent domain to take away land that black people did have. 
That's right. There's a taking of the lands. There's not a reimbursement for people who the 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 farmers. You know, people don't realize that 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 all that money that was gone to farmers haven't been properly distributed. So you've got the discrimination law. You've got everybody knows about the disparities in sentencing, and what under I am not under. President Obama, the uh, sentencing people changed the law to have from 100 to 1 disparities to 16 to 1 disparities. And my point is that he should have vetoed that. Mm -hmm. He should have said, look, I'm not going to continue to allow you to give a higher sentence to black people using cocaine, crack, over people using cocaine, take it and fix it and do it right. But by signing into law, now we've got to go through the whole cycle, which takes five to ten years, to try to re- to undo that disparity of sixteen to one. So it, it, it's when we look at these laws. You know, the, over and over again, there's a built-in disparity that has a disproportionate impact on African Americans. And there is very little remedy because we look toward the courts, and both in their interpretation of the law, um, as well as you can't the get political in. Intent. You can't get mm-hmm. in. Yeah, I mean the the reality is is you can't get into the courts, uh, it, and it's sad. I get people writing me all the time, and they want my help, and I'm like, I don't know what I can say to you, because I understand what you're saying, and I accept what you're saying, but there is no legal way into the courts on these issues, and our problem is. <laughs> is that the, we so we signed the International Treaty Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, which under that treaty we are in violation of that treaty. But one of the things the United States does is is that whenever it signs a human rights treaty, it puts a caveat on it saying, yeah, we're signing this treaty, but our citizens get get no more rights under our the treaty than what we already provide under our Constitution. So we, essentially we act like China. Mm-hmm. We act like any of the totalitarian countries that we complain about. We don't allow our citizens, we don't provide real treaty rights, even though we sign the treaties. We don't educate, we we have a responsibility, for instance, under the convention to educate the populace about the convention and what it should be done. We've never done that. We have we refuse to allow people to sue an international court for things that happen in the United States because the international law says that the 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 country has to okay you going into the uh, international court 
when we sign treaties, human rights treaties, we specifically take away that right. So in so so we can't even enforce the human rights treaties that the United States has signed. Well, one it, it strikes me um Vanilia, that one of the things that we do you know it was um um one of our sheroes in history said that if we had known that she could have led many more slaves out of slavery had they known and understood they were slaves why do we continue to participate in uh, in institutions and systems that work against our interests and i know that's a that's a huge question well i don't think we have a choice to tell you the truth I mean, I think about this a lot, and the, uh, the problem becomes that we are not a big enough part of the population to be able to, unless we decide, and, and well, let me say this, there's some discussion of black people moving to states that have uh, a high black population like Mississippi and tipping the balance so that electorally uh, we would control that. As long as we're dispersed like we are, we we don't have a choice because we're we only make up twelve percent of the population, and so we're dependent uh, upon. Um, th- these institutions, but I think your question is a bigger question because I, for instance, have decided to never vote for a Republican or Democrat again. I will not be voting for Barack Obama. I will not be for voting for Mick Romney. Neither one of those parties have the interest of of uh, uh, African Americans, and so. By voting for one, I continue to act as if it will make a difference. Um, in, I mean, a major difference. Of course, it's going to make some difference around the edge, but mm-hmm. in order to be free, we have to risk loss. You know, hmm. uh, we profound. have to risk death. We have to risk things getting worse. We can't both want things to get better without risking things getting worse. And our problem is we don't want to risk things getting worse. And so we continue, I think that we continue to participate because we are unwilling to make that risk. I mean, I close my eyes and I think about Mitt Romney being the president of the United States and my ears bleed from just the thought. But we've got a caller who wants to talk to you about this. Uh, 773, you're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call. Well, good evening, Janice, and good evening to Professor Randall. I've got a, not a problem. My, my main concern. you got a dilemma. Exactly. You're a exactly. runaway slave with a dilemma. Exactly. <laughs> I'm a runaway slave that, Ain't, they, they ain't, we ain't coming out. You're not taking me alive. And this, 
I look at this uh, notion of we have to risk it getting worse. How much worse can it be? The, the courts are stacked. The Klansmen, former Klansmen, and potential Klansmen. We get no justice. Look at the level of cases, civil rights cases, and how it's taken a nosedive. When we talk about it, we have to risk it getting worse. You make sure a Mitt Romney and a, a, a Paul Ryan budget plan gets through, and you're going to understand what not just worst is, but never recovering. And that's how I see it. We will never recover. If you think that uh, education is going to get better, you're wrong. There is a minute chance that just maybe something may happen or like I like to say, you've got Democrats who are bartering with corporations and you've got Republicans who are totally sold out. And it's absolutely voting for the less of two evils. But where are you going? Well, see, the thing is, I believe that I hear that a lot. I believe that we, you cannot vote for evil. You are a participant if you do. And we've been even if even if the results. First of all, I don't think even if the result is what you think it would be, if you participate in evil by vote, if you participate by voting for the lesser of two evil, you are authorizing evil. I don't and mind authorizing evil. Authorizing evil is acceptable. So as long as it's not such a profound evil. If Except you think the thing is, is is that it is a profound evil. It is the same evil as the Republicans. If there is very it, it is drone attacks. It is uh, 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 rounding up people on terrorist charges and saying they have Molotov cocktails. It is privatizing schools, privatizing health care, privatizing food inspection. It is taking millions of dollars from uh, the Wall Street to fund a campaign. It is the same evil. They just oh. talk about it differently. Oh, Professor. And, 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 and in terms of race, which is what I'm talking about, it is the same evil. You know, putting my school and my school, my school now has. There was a point when I really rallied against my school because they had very few black people in it. They had me to be, you know. Now we, in terms of faculty members, you you can't look at window dressing. And think that because someone is doing the window dressing and not look at the substance of what they do. And the reality is, is, is that ex Barama, President Obama catches hell because he's black, because his policies are Republican. Absolutely. If you look at his policies, his policies are Republican. Now, You're absolutely right. But if we want to move out of this kind of scenario where you vote for the right 
you there's the Democrat is middle in the middle of the road to right, and the Republican is right of them. If that's the only two choices we're willing to accept, then that's fine. But we'll never get other choices as long as we keep making those two choices. How will we ever get out of that? It's a, it's a, it's a, you know, one of those traps are that where you, where you pull, where you, where you put on your fingers, and the only way to get out of the trap is to stop pulling. You can't pull your finger out of this trap. The only way to pull, get out of the trap is to stop pulling. And by stop pulling, I mean stop voting for Democrats and Republicans. And then who do you root for? You root for whoever you want. And are, are you going, I think you should go to the polls. I think it is imperative that people vote because I think that you don't want them saying that there was lack of turnout for lack of interest. You want them saying there was a good turnout, but they didn't vote for the Democrats and Republicans. They voted for anyone else who was on the ballot. Well, well, Professor, um, Personally, I, I will vote for socialists or the Green Party, but I, I'm not advocating that. I'm suggesting that people, that the only way we're going to get out of this trap of Evil and lesser evil is to stop voting for evil. And vote and vote for the Green Party or someone who hasn't. If they garner one or two percent of the vote, they'll be lucky. How do we expect to make change? If we, we can't make change with one or two percent of the vote, you have to have. A, a reality check. But it's a growth process. It's a process. It's like Harriet Tubman didn't, you didn't, she didn't take all those slaves out at once. She took out a few at a time and it built up over time. We will get changed over time because, number one, I believe that if the Democrats really begin to lose votes, they will move further left than to rather than lose the votes. Now, that's where I come in, that if we begin to participate, I mean, um, we've got to say that, I mean, in the same way that the Tea Parties are saying that the Republican Party is not their party and that they've got to be on another agenda in another zone, We've got to say the same thing to the Democrats, and we've got to say it in a way where we have aligned ourselves where we where we want to be rather than where they are taking us. But we have to mean it. See, the problem yes. right now is is that people the people the the Democrats are comfortable in the idea that there's all these people who will vote for the lesser evil. And so they can stay in the middle, they can stay right, because what are you going to do? Well, what I'm suggesting we do is say to them, you don't have our vote. Because we it is we are throwing our way our vote to vote for you when you're never going to do the things we want. We would rather throw away our vote on the potential of someone who is going to do more of what we want. If the Democrats really believe that, really believe that, I think they would move left. But even if 
they don't, I think we have to stop. I mean, because Democrats and Republicans are corporatist capitalist parties designed to maintain the corporatist capitalist system and Black people's role in this system is to make profits for those people. I'm not, I don't argue that. You're absolutely right. What I do have a problem with is the fact that we seem to believe that by turning to a third party and simply allowing the far right to walk in, that somehow this is going to get better. You know, I look at it like this. Social Security, voters' rights, civil rights, it all came about through liberals. Medicare, Medicaid, it came about through liberals. Conservatives, Republicans never supported it, and now they're trying to dismantle it. If it's allowed So where to are the liberals, Alpha? Where are the liberals now? The liberals Who are the liberals? Well, let me put it like this. The liberals have been so far demonized and vilified, and that started with Ronald Reagan. And they've been demonized and vilified, and they haven't fought back politically, and they haven't fought back with the message. So now it's a bad deal to be a liberal, just like it's bad for affirmative action. They did the same thing with affirmative action, demonized, vilified, and brought it down. They've done the same thing with the race card. And if you look at the history, look at just we've all lived it, and look at what they've done throughout history. Whatever they wanted, they demonized, vilified, and brought it down. Now, we seem to be ashamed of carrying that banner of being liberal. But the only the only way we can carry that banner is to speak up and demonize the Democratic Party. We cannot. We have to say loud and often and clear: you don't represent us. Well, you do not represent us. You are too far to the right for us. Exactly. Well, while we're Let me suggest any, something here. We are not I, I your wanna, base anymore. I want to remind our audience that our number is 347-838-9852, and you can get in on this discussion. But one of the things that we have to do, and me uh, in our in our chat room just reminded us that all politics is local. If we begin to really move against the people who we send to Congress, demonizing them, speaking truth to power to them, they will begin. Instead, they're always coming coming to us for either money or our vote, or our vote to vote for somebody else. I think that's right. I think that, that one way to start this is on a local level. It's, it's one way to have the most impact. But I, I just... I... I I don't think things are going to get better by voting for a third party. I think things are going to get worse. But as a nurse, let me tell you, you can't break the fever until it gets up to the point where it's going to break. And 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 so in my mind that the only way for us to really get people to revolt well, ladies, for things to become worse, 
not for things to stay the same. As long well, as I don't I don't look at things as having stayed the same. I look at just like you all are saying that we should demonize the Democrats also. But it's a three I think it's some there's other demonization that needs to go along there. When you get What's into that, the, the courts. The courts. The court system is stacked. The the fidelity to the law of these judges has to be challenged. It has to be called out. We have to stay, if we're going to stand our ground against the political parties and look at them both as evil. The greater evil is the court system because no, they the greater are, evil is the political parties because the political parties appoint the court system, and that the political parties, for instance, Democrats. Could change the whole game. We all, everybody talk about. We got this conservative court. We got this conservative court. There's not much we can do. Oh yeah, when you had the House and the Senate and the presidency, you could have appointed four additional people to the Supreme Court, changing the balance. Democrats don't want to do that because they don't want that. The courts behave the way that the political parties want them to behave because the courts are political appointees. And 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 you're never going to get the courts to change until you get the political parties to change. Well, I don't I mean, how many de- how many Democrats? I mean, you you got to think about this. How many Democrats really and truly supported this president? on the health care bill. How many Democrats went after the federal judge who called the President of the United States a dog or his mother or somebody? But you're absolutely right about that. But look, when you speak about the the majority, the supermajority, he had uh, 60, then there were 59. But what you're excluding, you're excluding people like um, Blanche Lincoln, Ben Nelson, Mary Landrieu, Joe Lieberman. And as I count them down, simply count down, he no longer has the majority. When you include people, the certain, the conservatives, the blue dogs, we are talking something totally Why do we have blue dogs? Why doesn't the Democratic Party say, look, you are way too conservative for us. Go on and be a Republican. We don't need you in our party because you bring us down. The reason the Democratic Party has blue dogs is so they can have an excuse for not going further left. I don't I don't argue that either. But it's when a you, construct within the party. It's, I mean, at, it's the, the party operates the way the party wants to operate, and it does it for a reason. You're right. You're and, absolutely right. I'm, and, I'm not arguing the fact that Democrats have so... Their shortcomings are so large that, you know, when this president walked into office in January of 2009, Harry Reid should have made some serious adjustments to the filibuster so that this his agenda could not be obstructed the way it is. And, I mean, we just didn't get it. So Harry Reid, a so-called Democrat, stood in the doorway. So why now, do we... Right, right. We, we turned, what do we do? We turned around and in 2010... But we Alpho, elected Harry Reid. Alpha, you keep worrying about Harry Reid 
and all them people. You know you and I have had this conversation before. Of course. Those people are irrelevant to breaking the chains for black people in this country. They are irrelevant. Until you get to your local school board and your mayor and your congressional delegation, until you get them squared away and kick them in the ass and tell them what the agenda is, that's where we've got to start organizing. And I would say kick them in the pants by electing a socialist person. Don't tell The problem with Democrats, even at the local level, is this, that they are party loyalists. And so to the extent that they're party loyalists, they have to, until they believe they won't win elections being party loyalists. And the only way they're going to believe that is for them to start losing elections to people who have platforms that are the way we want them. Absolutely. And and, and let me point out some of the, the mistakes that we make. We are not. Alpha, even you, you're not a Democrat. You're a socialist. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. But so why do you vote Democrat? I'm I'm honest about it. I I look at the reality of it. Stay home. Do not vote for either Republican or Democrat. The problem with the reality of it. The problem with the reality-based assessment is is that. As long as we look at a reality-based assessment, we will not have a change, any significant change for black people. That Frederick Douglass had to step out of reality in order to be able to work on affecting change. That you can't, you have to say, this reality is not the reality I want, and so I ain't participating in it. Now, it may take 30 40 years for the for real change to come about. But if enough of us refuse to participate in the reality, it will change. Participation maintains the system. Every time someone goes and votes for a Democrat that isn't the kind of Democrat that they want, they are maintaining the system. And so I, 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 I want everybody to sit back. All of the Democrats, that there is no Democrat. I have Sharon Brown is from Ohio. He's considered a progressive. I don't vote for him. He's a party loyalist. A party loyalist, in the end, is going to go the way the party wants them to go. Hey, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. But I right. want everybody to sit back for a minute and, and imagine. Here on Our Common Ground, go back to the early 70s. It was the Socialist Party of the USA that supported labor organizing across this country. It was the Socialist Party that supported the work of the Black Panther Party. It was the Socialist Party, and they tried to keep them 
hidden behind the curtain that supported the movements in the South in the late 50s and early 60s that brought about the civil rights movement. It was the Socialist Party that wasn't ashamed to support the black power movement. And that was back in the 60s. And how and, many? And, and it would have been the Socialist Party in Wisconsin if they had listened to the Socialist Party in Wisconsin, then Scott Walker would have never been the governor of Wisconsin. And we've got one. I think there are concrete things we have to do if we want this reality to change. We have to uh, get winner-take-all laws off the book. We, we, because the Democrats and Republicans, by doing a winner-take-all system, assures that it's always going to be a Democrat or Republican. So what we have to do is we have to get proportional. Now, the problem becomes, is, of course, neither the Democrats or the Republicans are going to want that. Well, don't they have something similar to that in California? Won't they be bringing that to – there won't be a Democrat or a Republican on the ballot. They will simply be – a list of candidates, and the top two will go to the runoff. Yeah, but what I'm what I'm saying is, even without taking taking out the name Democrat and Republican, what they should do is uh, get rid of the uh, winter uh, winner takes all and do proportional representation, so that if a socialist was able to garner uh, 20, 10% of the vote, they would have 10% representation in Congress. I'm not opposed to that. I'm not opposed to that at all. That's, and that's one I, I mean, there, I think there's things, when I say that we have to stop voting for evil, I don't mean stop voting and do nothing and wait for the things to change. I mean stop voting and at the same time agitate and work on getting the kind getting the change that we want. But we can never get the change we want by continuing to vote for capitalist corporatist candidates on any level. And if they are party loyalists, that's what they are. Well ladies, I'm gonna leave it. I'm going to leave it there, and I'm going to finish. Alpha, with we we understand so the, much. the uh, dilemma that you have, and thank you for your call. Um, that was Alpha of the Alpha Show, who he can be heard on Friday nights at 10 p.m. on TruthWorks Network. Um, Alpha knows too much, <laughs> <laughs> and when you know too much, sometimes. Um, it all gets so complex that you look for the tunnel with the light. And sometimes we have to look, Professor Randall, for the tunnel that has no light. Well, that's what I mean by taking a risk, that the risk is we know, we can feel comfortable that if we vote for one Democrat or Republican, we can be comfortable in what we're going to get. Okay? We may not like it, but we will know what we're going to get. When we don't vote for them, we don't know what we're going to get. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It be worse. And, and sometimes There's it's a ton not of... always about voting. Because right. electoral politics is only 
one-fourth of what goes on in the political arena. That's right. Sometimes it's got to be about choosing an issue both locally at the state level. I can't imagine why we are talking about the complete deterioration of public education in this country and we're not talking about waging a war against the people who make decisions both about funding and about educational agenda and 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 achievement and about the issue of disparate impact on black children in public schools. Well, now, if you're not talking about that at the local level, you're not talking about nothing. Talking to the Department of of Education and talking to the White House about education, there's no intercession from those groups. No, I think I think you're exactly right. There is no excuse for pub, the public school in your area uh, to be doing tasing kids, to be calling cops on kids to be disproportionately dismissing kids from schools, to be uh, doing the thing. I mean, those are local things that that we should be protesting in, in the streets over. But I do think, how to say, uh, I, my son and I talked about this late, earlier this afternoon. We were wondering... What has gotten into Americans that we don't protest? Canadians have been in the streets for the last month protesting a $154 raise in tuition over four years. We don't go to the streets for anything. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know... and I I really don't know that we can expect change through politeness. I mean, the thing that I the thing that I think that I've learned over the last forty five years of working in institutions is is that systems can respond to politeness. They can respond to requests. They can respond to uh, uh, um, individual agitation. They can even respond to demands of small groups. And sometimes they respond by giving you part of what you want and then coming around behind you and cutting your legs out from under you. Mm-hmm. Because- and that's certainly help, 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 happening in health care where we have this uh, health care bill, but the response of the insurance industry has been to raise fees and to raise costs. Exactly. And nobody's talking about that. That yeah. has been the direct response uh, to that. When we started talking about discrimination and the adverse impact on black and Latino children in public education, the response was charter schools, and we went for that. Well, we, uh, and part of our problem as part of our problem as a society 
is is that we have bought into the privatization thing. We bought into the idea that private companies can do it better than public companies. We bought into the idea that we don't want to pay more taxes. I I I once asked a group of my students. I said, and these were I was teaching at a, a HBCU, uh, and I and it, and it was all black students. And I said, what if I could give you a way? where there would be no poor people, that everyone would make a decent living and that they would have a decent education uh, and housing and food and health care. But there would be no rich people either. That, And do you know nobody wanted that? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the problem is, is, is that People have bought into the myth of the American dream. Black people have bought into the myth of the American dream. And so what we want is better conditions for our group. We really don't want to undermine the total system. And I, I don't think that's possible because the total system is built upon uh, black labor as cheap labor. First free, and then uh, cheap doing Jim Crow, and now cheap, cheap doing uh, this uh, re-racialization period. Hmm. And so, you know, we have to give up on the American dream and say, you know, the American dream was built on our backs. The housing. Federal housing, a the the way most white people became middle class was buying a house after World War Two, and having that housing, it, the the value of the housing go up, and so then they could use that house, that ho- the value in that house to finance college education for their kids, et cetera. Okay, problem the federal housing agency wouldn't loan to black people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so my my dad came from the war, and many of our families come from the war. We didn't have access to that wealth-building opportunity. And now the housing, and now people are sitting in housing. Part of our problem is we also need to look when the system has changed. The housing system has changed. And I don't think it will ever recover. And people are sitting on houses that are worth less than what they owe. They need to get out of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Stop worrying about the bank foreclosing. Give the damn things back to the bank. Say, look, I ain't paying you forty, thirty, twenty-five thousand, fifty thousand dollars extra on this house, but. We we didn't have access to housing, and now we people got the housing, and so we still have that dream that came with owning a house, even though that bubble has been burst. We didn't have so we didn't have access to housing. We didn't have access to the student loan program that came out of World War Two. We just every single law has we've been discriminated against. We are the economic foundation of this society. 
We are another group like that. And that's mm-hmm. the whole point that is is that 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 they're going there's as long as we maintain a capitalist corporatist system, the best that we can hope for is that our group won't be disproportionately affected. But somebody is. Poor whites, Hispanics, whoever they are. So do we want to be participant in a system that is going to do to other people what is being done to us now? Hmm. You know, if we could wake up tomorrow morning and no longer have racism against us, that will not change the system which will continue to have racism or, or oppression against others. So we've got to fight to get rid of an oppressive system, and you can't do that with the Democrats and Republicans. And taking, mm-hmm. taking that back to mass incarceration, fundamentally we have to get rid of victimless crimes. Okay, and I know this may go against a lot of people's belief, but the way to deal with drug abuse is through public health. We know the reason alcohol is not criminalized is because when they tried it, it didn't work. And we we are trying, they tried, so we need to decriminalize drugs, we need to decriminalize prostitution, we need to decriminalize vagrancy, People ought to be able to stand on the streets and not be a vagrant. These are all victimless crimes. Now, if there are things that need to be instituted to protect people, we need to do that. We need to spend the money to provide public health services. We need to spend the money to assure that people who get in prostitution have a 4053C or whatever it is and, and are protected. But when you decriminalize things, you take the illegality out, which means you take the criminal element out, and then you drive down the prices. That, mm-hmm. that, that, that is what will happen. It also means that the primary way of putting black people in jail will be removed. We need to pressure Obama to pardon all of the people who had these uh, overblown sentences under the 100 to 1 ratio and to pardon them down to 16 to 1. He should do that as a, a mass thing. We need a national plan of action that is run out of the White House for uh, uh, getting rid of racial disparities. And we need it that we need to do that on local levels. But I, my fear, my 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 primary fear is one: we won't do enough to really change the system, or B, we will find a way to shift the oppression to some other group and then participate in an oppressive system. Well, one of the things that we've certainly got to be about is we've got to be clear that ours is a human rights um, struggle. Right. That ours is not, our solutions 
are not within the laws that continually oppress us. Professor Randall, you have uh, certainly given us so much uh, to to think about and think about in a different way that, you know, I, I don't think that we can continue to rely on the same system that oppresses us and works against us to to to, to solve the problems. And we and do have to do it differently. We can not only not rely on them, we can't participate in them. See, I think people would agree we can't rely on the system to solve the problem. In fact, I hear a lot of people saying that. But what they want to do is continue to participate in the system. And participating in the system um, uh, uh, props it up, keeps it going. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, we've certainly got to, to have you come back Absolutely and right. talk about that participation and, and what that and I want people in the audience to think about what that participation means. For instance, we're looking at this situation down in Florida with Marissa Alexander and her 20-year sentence for defending her life. We're looking at the murder of Trayvon Martin and laws which are going to protect a man, protect him from murder, for uh in 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 a case of murder against a 17-year-old teenager. And we 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 cannot forget. We certainly cannot forget uh through all of this. Politicians, commentators, our our media uh unrelenting in racism and reinforcing spouting sewer of racism in the media, culture, and politics of this society. And it's, going, and it's taken deadly aim at the dreams and spirit of every African-American child in this country. Um, we, we, we definitely are going to have to ask you if you will come back again. I would love to come back. And uh, I want our audience to know that this has to be an ongoing com- uh, discussion. The discourse um, in our communities has to be coming to the reality that the reality isn't real. Yes. <laughs> Vernelia, thank you so much. We uh, look forward to it. You know I have some ideas about uh, about how we can get your voice um on an ongoing basis and I really it's been such a privilege to have you break down these these notions for us and try to get our heads screwed on tight because I think that we're trying to make sense out of senselessness and it's not working and more and more of us are falling uh on the sidelines because it's just so frustrating well, thank you for inviting me. Thank you, and we look forward to having you again. Okay. Um, just a just a, a wonderful talk. I want to thank all of you who are out there. We're going to take a little break, and um, no, we don't have time for a break. We want to thank Alpho for his call. Um, 571 is on the line real quick. We only have about six minutes. You're on the air. I respect you. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
I just had one suggestion when you were talking about the voting and our voting pattern. Yes. And one of the things that we have done here in Virginia, initially through the NAACP, was to have people go to the polls and vote for the most innocuous thing on the ballot. Do not vote for a Republican. Do not vote for a Democrat. Vote for the dog catcher. That tells them, A, that you were there. B, you're dissatisfied with everything else on that ballot. It keeps them from expunging you from the voter roll so that you don't have to have your vote suppressed in the next election because you're not duly registered. Go and vote. But vote well, was something that means I, I agree that we do have to show a force. But part of the problem uh, to the caller is that you're looking at uh, voter participation um, in in Chicago, for instance, in 2010. The turnout was was 20% mm-hmm. in, 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 in our community. And that's one of the things that we do do have to work on, but what I'm suggesting also is that electoral politics is not the only strategy option available to us. When we start speaking truth to power to the people that we see every day, our school boards, our city councilors, you know, um, I am just one of those people who think that we have to call them who they are. Every every time, I mean, we have to start writing letters to the newspapers. We have to start going to these meetings and disrupting and agitating and organizing. I mean, I, I, I have one friend um, who goes to a school board meeting, and every time that there is a parent who is complaining at the school board meeting, then that person monitors that particular issue. And and that's what we've got to start doing. I'm sorry that you call so late in the broadcast, but we want to encourage all of you who are new to our Common Ground. We are here every Saturday night at 10 p.m., and we do have other programming at our sister network, TruthWorks Network, right here on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, on Monday nights, uh, we have Global Village Voices with Peter E. Matthews at 9 p.m. And on Wednesday and Thursday night, it's Enter the, the Lion's Den with LDX and Friends, and that's at 10 p.m. And then on Friday night, we have the Alpha Show, which is the political pushback talk radio show at TruthWorks Network and Our Common Ground at 10 p.m. every Saturday. So we hope you'll spread the word. And, and one of the things we've got to do, caller, we've yes. got to support those things which support us, those activities like independent um, media, because you won't get all of the information and you won't get the black truth of the issue on uh, other kinds of um, media. Thank you for your call, and we encourage all of you to uh, listen in on Melissa Harris Perry tomorrow morning at 10 p.m. on MSNBC. I'm Janice Graham, and it's been a pleasure. 
You've been tuned to Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. And don't forget, here, Our Common Ground, each Saturday, 10 p.m., speaking truth to power and ourselves, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Have a great weekend. It is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.